TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hey, worklifers. It's Adam Grant. This is Taken for Granted, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist, and this series is about rethinking assumptions that we often take for granted about how we work, lead, and live. This is my second conversation with CEO extraordinaire Indra Nui, who led a remarkable transformation of PepsiCo. We recently sat down on stage for a live conversation in the Authors at Wharton series that I host. Along with dispensing her trademark sage advice, she was a riot, so buckle up. Indra, welcome to Wharton. Great to be here, Adam. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you here. I've admired your leadership since the day I started studying leadership. So it's going to be a real treat to get to soak up some of your wisdom. And I've been reading your books and soaking up your wisdom all my time. So this is a two-person backstabbing society. As a social scientist, it has bothered me for a very long time that in Mm. blind taste tests, Pepsi is clearly superior to Coke. And yet people still have more affinity with the Coke brand in certain ways. And one of the things I learned from your book is that you don't care. Why not? Because at some point you've got to sit down and say, how much money do you want to spend on getting the brand to win in the marketplace head-to-head, as opposed to building out a portfolio that's really in tune with where the consumer is going. There's no point taking a legacy business and putting too much money behind it to get to an end goal, which is questionable anyway. So you've got to know when to rethink the paradigm that you're operating in. Well, I'm a fan of rethinking in many ways, but this seems like, this seems like blasphemy. Like, how could you say we're okay with being number two in a market? What CEO does that? Well, why are you looking at just one brand? That's the first problem with the way you look at the beverage business. Uh, about 25 years ago, the market used to be 80% sodas and 20% all other beverages. Today, it's about 40% sodas and 60% other beverages. If you get locked into comparing brand Coke versus brand Pepsi, it's like you know, yesterday's business when the market's going away from you and going into the future businesses. So you've got to look at the overall beverage business to the overall beverage business. And just for your information, Pepsi has Lipton iced tea, number one, Gatorade, number one, Starbucks Frappuccino, number one, Aquafina doing pretty well. So you've got to really go with the times. You know, the best example is people say that the red beverage is timeless. The blue beverage is timely. I'd rather be timely than timeless. (laughs) 
Interesting. So we have some MBA students in the audience. Mm. Um, I am often critical of uh-huh. that choice of paths, particularly uh-huh. if they did an undergrad business degree. Wondering, who needs six years of business education? That I agree with you. Okay. Good. 100%. Either you do an undergraduate in business and do your postgraduate in something completely different, or you do your undergraduate in something which has a hint of science and then do your MBA. I honestly believe that you're right. Six years is too much. Okay. But, but you do see value in an MBA if you didn't study business as an undergrad. I don't know the MBA of today. Wait, why are you hesitating? Let me tell you why. Because I think the MBA education needs to be redone, recast. Uh, The MBA degree that I got versus the MBA degree that exists today, I think needs to come a long way. So let me rewind, hit play, and come forward. When I went to the Yale School of Management and did a master's in public and private management, it was way ahead of its time. Because what Yale was teaching way back in 1978 was that companies are rooted in society. They have a duty of care to every society and community they're part of. So we have to think of all stakeholders and think of the impact of every company on every constituency it deals with before it sets a strategy of financial objectives. Some years later, Yale went to an MBA because that was considered the only way to get in the rankings, which I have a real problem with. But then, although Wharton does fantastic in the rankings, I've got to tell you. <laughs> we but don't then, care officially. That, but... Thank you. But then, if you fast forward now, this whole ESG stakeholder theory purpose has brought us full circle back to Yale's original goal of uh, you know, linking companies into societies. So I think Yale should never have walked away from uh, you know, masters in public and private management. And when I went to school, one third of the cases were nonprofit, one third was government, political, only one third was corporate cases. So it was a great experience. I was studying about the Metropolitan Museum and it was going through bankruptcy, how to recover. Those were fantastic cases, which sort of made you understand. The other thing too, Adam, that bothers me is, in business schools, we teach people not to be siloed in companies, how you should break down silos. But I think business schools and universities are extremely siloed. So I think we have to rethink in business schools how we redo the education so it's more practicing what we are supposed to be teaching. I think that's a valid critique, and I would love to see us take steps in that direction. I think we've, we've taken some. We have a lot more work to do. Okay, so in my dozen years at Wharton, the proposal I've been most excited about that's gotten zero traction is to eliminate the two-year MBA and only offer a one and a three-year. The one would be for career accelerators who are going to go right back to their same industry. Mm-hmm. The three would be for career switchers to have time to do two internships and actually learn what they want to mm-hmm. do moving forward. Support or reject? I would give them the book called Rethink and have them read it. (laughs) I think that's what's badly needed. You know what? You never have any status in your own backyard, right? (laughs) No, actually, the Association of MBA Deans ought to debate that discussion. The last time I spoke to them, I think it was in New Orleans, I told them they had to rethink the entire MBA. The time has come, and some of them turned the other way. Others said it's a great idea. Maybe now the one year could be remote, though. It could be, yeah. And the way technology is progressing... Uh, it could become a reality, which means no more buildings. Ooh. All right. Well, then whose names will go on to non-buildings? I don't know how that's going to work. That's right. Uh, and I don't know how we fund this whole enterprise then, that's but that true. is a problem you could solve for us. That's true. Okay. One of the things that I think you were remarkable at, um, both during your consulting career and as you moved into management roles, was recruiting people to mentor you. Uh, people who often were very busy, mm. who didn't need more mentees. How did you do it? How did you get people to say, yes, I want to invest in Indra? 
I don't think I've ever asked somebody to be my mentor. People sort of pick me, and I think what I've learned over the years is mentors pick you, you don't pick them. And the reason they pick you is because they see something in you that attracts them to you, and they think that if they were to mentor you, support you, and accelerate your progress, they will also look good downstream. Every one of the people that has served as my mentor, supporter, promoter, whatever, even now will say, I had a, a part in her development. Uh, you know, I helped her you know, move through these years of her life. And so I think you have to be careful about going to some stranger and saying, will you be my mentor, which a lot of people ask me to do. I can't do it. The second is that if you are a mentee, supportee, whatever you are, you owe a duty of care to your mentor. So if your mentor is giving you advice, don't just listen to it the one year and let it go out the other year. Process it. And if you're not going to take the advice, go back to the mentor and say, look, you gave me this advice on this issue. Let me tell you why I didn't take it. Let me tell you the paths B that I went down, and let me tell you why I did that. So you have to give respect to the mentor if you want to maintain the relationship. This Very is, important. This is such invaluable advice on both fronts. I cannot tell you how many students I've had come into my office for career advice, and then they do the exact opposite of what I yeah. recommended, and I hear about it six months later. I don't care whether you followed my advice. Yeah. I want to learn from what your analysis was. That's exactly right. And I right. also want to be able to say, now I told you so, instead of waiting <laughs> until you right. take the job and then call me a year later <laughs> and say, right. I never should have gone yeah. to that company. Oops. No, but, you know, but, people forget that this mentor-mentee relationship is actually a two-way responsible relationship, yeah. uh, you know, cherish it. Well, and on the, the first point, I think one of the things that's so powerful here is I, we hear frequently from our students, you know, I, I feel like it's an imbalanced relationship. Um, you know, I have nothing to give back to my mentor. Like what you're saying here is excelling, right? Succeeding is what you give back because then your mentor gets some credit for your success and also gets to see you go off and shine. If you do a good job, that should be, uh, you know, psychic a pleasure for your mentor because it doesn't matter if you're working for that person, if, you, if you're doing a great job somewhere else, they look at you fondly and say, you know, I had a say in her doing so well in that job because I trained her to think this way or approach things this way. So they take great pleasure in, in your progress wherever you are or wherever they are. So you had a lot of supportive people surrounding you. Mm. You also had some people who did not necessarily see your potential. Talk to us about some of the biases you faced and how you dealt with them. Well, you know, again, the time that I came into the corporate world, there were no women in consulting, maybe two women in BCG Chicago, which is where I was. And the only other senior woman was in Boston, and I'd never met her. So there were no senior women in BCG Chicago. And... Uh, Going over to client organizations, I don't believe I ever saw a woman in a client organization. So you enter rooms and there'll be 50 people in the boardroom or a conference room and you'll be the only woman. And half of it was my problem, Adam, because I walked into these meetings always and said to myself, I'm sure they're all thinking, what is she doing in this room? You know, she's so different, comes from an emerging market, woman on top of that, what is she going to contribute to us? So right off the bat, I dug a hole for myself and I said, I've got to dig out of this hole because I've got to prove to them that I have a right to be at this table. 
And so I would over-prepare. I would have every number at my fingertips. I mean, I was like a walking computer, which didn't exist then. I was there, the laptop, I was it. You're like so a walking I was it. In those yeah. days, none of those existed, remember. So I would prepare, and I'd earn a seat at the table. And as you mentioned, my clothes were pretty interesting. And so they're looking at me saying, who is this person that you brought into the room uh, to advise CEOs of big companies in consulting? And uh, so I had to get them to overcome all of those uh, negative screens and view me as just a brain sitting behind a table. And after the first couple of meetings, they would always turn to me first. And so I think I benefited from the fact that people are willing to look past the superficial stuff and get to the crux of the matter, which again, I'd say only in America. And I was a beneficiary of all of that. So the fact that I was the only woman in most cases, I probably experienced less bias than many people experience today. Because people actually wanted me to succeed, to say it's a novelty. Let's see how we can have a succeed. Wow. So this idea that, that you were going to prove yourself and you had something to prove, I think you're preaching to the choir here. Our own Samir Nur Mohammed, who's I think sitting right there, um, has done some brilliant research on underdogs mm. and how when people underestimate you or when people doubt you, if they're not credible, that fires you up. Yep. And it leads you to say, you know what, I'm going to show you. Mm -hmm. Where it's much harder is when the people above you are credible, where they've accomplished a lot, where they're very senior, and they're questioning you. And who are you going to trust? Like your, your own confidence that you can do it? Or this very senior person who thinks you can't? How did you deal with being an underdog or being underestimated in those situations? At the end of the day, I can only rely on my competence, my knowledge. So, like I said, I was over-prepared. Let me tell you how I prepared. If this was the assignment I was given, I always levitated and defined my assignment to be that much bigger because I wanted to understand every linkage between what I was given to how it was going to impact the enterprise as a whole. So I always zoomed into my assignment and zoomed out to see how the uh, impact was going to be measured across. So uh, whenever anybody talked about something, I said, just a minute. Uh, it's not going to help the company because if I took what I was doing plus what person A and person B was doing, the combination that I'm suggesting is way better than the combination you are looking at. Uh, but maybe I'm missing something. You know, in my, young, in my youth, I'd say, I'm right and you're wrong. I'd be black and white and in your face. I was taught how to communicate in a more gentle way. So I'd say things like, you know, maybe I'm not understanding what you're doing. Although in my head, I'm going, you're wrong. <laughs> you know? So let me, can you help me understand what I'm missing? Uh, and then at the meeting, they say, you're wrong. I'm the boss. Forget it. But a day or two later, they'd come back and say, I think you were right. And, I, you know, they, they'd call me the dog with the bone because if I decided that I was right, I'd come back at this, reconceptualize in five different ways. I wouldn't give up because at the end of the day, if I'd done all the work and I thought my solution was right for the company and I felt others had not done the kind of work, it behooved me to keep coming back to the issue till either they showed me compelling analysis to disprove me or you accept what I said. So my CEOs would always call me, she's a dog with a bone, don't argue, because she's not going to give up if she believes she's right. I think you need that kind of conviction in something you do. What if you're wrong, though? They can, if they have better facts to prove that I'm wrong, I'm willing to completely accept it. Because remember, the goal is not personal showcasing. 
The person, the goal is what's right for the company. But you, you got to match me with facts and figures. Don't just say, my gut tells me this. Gut works, but gut works when it's backed up with some facts and figures. Ideally formed after the facts and figures. Ideally formed after the fact. But I tell you, many uh, senior leaders are prisoner of the past. So their gut comes from what they've been doing all the time in the past. And if, this, if the world is changing, the situation is changing, you've got to change. And then they don't know how to change. So they always rely on, my gut tells me this is what you've got to do. Then you start to have doubts saying, oh, you're a prisoner of your past. Let me see how I can help you. <laughs> so then you take over PepsiCo, and mm. you have this bold, massive vision to reinvent the business, essentially, and say, we don't want to just you know, give people sugar water. We don't want to contribute to an epidemic of obesity or poor health. Um, we actually want to make people healthier. Was that, was that a challenge to get people on board with that vision, or had the world changed enough that people were starting to come around? Can I just reframe your yeah, question Yeah, of course. A I know bit. you're not going to agree with that characterization <laughs> at all, no. so please correct it. Let me, let me reframe your question to say that um, the portfolio was made for a time when that's what people ate and drank. I came in saying consumer tastes are changing. I want to take what I call a fun-for-you portfolio and make it better for you and good for you also, so that the consumer had infinite choice. They could eat and drink whatever they wanted, and all that I wanted to make sure was the better for you and the, and the good for you choices were not more expensive, tasted bad, or were not available. So they all had to be ubiquitously available, affordably priced, and high quality. That's all I wanted to make sure. Um, you know, I had to do that because that's where the consumer was going. And again, when I became CEO, we did a piece of work on megatrends. What are the big megatrends that are going to impact PepsiCo over the next decade or two? And then future back, if you work on it and say, what do I need to do today to cater to these trends? Because it takes a while to get the R&D and all of the disciplines in place, uh, the product launches, the innovation. Uh, so that megatrends work was my true north. And once I got the board to buy into the megatrends, it was very easy for me to devise the strategies and the plans to uh, address the megatrends. So, it was relatively easy, and now it was selling it to the rest of the people in the company. And the question is what words to use. This is where I think using the words that speak to people's heart is more important than speaking to their minds. And so performance with purpose was born. Uh, and how do you continue to deliver performance? Because PepsiCo is a performance machine. But do it with a way to ensure human sustainability, environmental sustainability, and talent sustainability. And that was purpose, nourish, replenish, cherish. So when you put all of them together, it spoke to the employees and we got most of them to buy into it. The few that didn't, we had to work on them. It was, I thought it was such a compelling example of what our, our own Drew Carton would study around creating a truly vivid vision that people can, they can see the future, they can taste it, they can touch it, as opposed to a bunch of abstract words. How did you get there? Because we know from Drew's research that so many people get promoted on the basis of their abstract strategic thinking skills, and then it becomes very difficult to tell the, the vivid story and, and really lay out the narrative for who we're going to become and, and what our products are going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you develop that over time? Did you just wake up one morning and say, aha, Nourish, replenish, cherish. My work here is done. <laughs> wow, God. Uh, so remember, when I was president of the company, going back to 2000, 
I was still managing all of the corporate functions. I mean, I had 16 reports or something like that. I had every corporate function that reported to me. So I was already thinking about the future of the company. And there were some very interesting findings. Nobody consumed the PepsiCo product before 10 a.m. in the morning because we didn't have a breakfast product. We didn't have a breakfast beverage. Tropicana was our first acquisition that got us into the pre-10 a.m. day part. And the one aha was prior to 10 a.m., people only consumed by and large good-for-you products. So it was a healthy day part, and we needed our brands in the morning. So all of a sudden, the wheels start to move, saying, we better get that day part filled in. Quaker Oats came in. Quaker Oats, actually, we were more excited about the Quaker trademark than Gatorade, because it gave us an inroad into the morning day part. So once we filled out the morning day part, you start saying, what else do we have to do to keep this company healthy and growing? So as you go in piece by piece by piece, you realize exactly what you have to do. And at that time, we got a letter from some coastal senators in the eastern seaboard to all of the companies in the consumer space saying that too much plastic is washing up on our shores. How are we going to address this? You know, I took it personally because I said, this is our seashores, so we have to do something about it as opposed to let, let the others worry about it. Everything became personal for me. So we started to think about all of these issues and say, we have to do something. We have to do our part to make the portfolio healthier overall because obesity was becoming a big issue, address these issues like uh, plastic. And I grew up water distressed in Madras. There was no water in Madras. And the fact that we had a plant in the outskirts of Madras, going deeper and deeper into the aquifer and taking out water to make Pepsi bothered me. So I realized we had to get much more water efficient. So the whole uh, nourish, replenish, cherish was personal to me. And I concluded on something there, Adam, if I may. If you want to execute purpose, and all of these ESG things we're talking about, which are a form of purpose, Either the CEO feels it deep down inside because of a lived experience, or they're a convert because uh, they've seen it all and now say, boy, I've got to do something different. Or the third group do it just because there's an external force. And if you take away the external force, I believe a large number of CEOs won't do a damn thing. And that is a problem. And we have to bring them back to business schools to teach them how to run companies the right way. Well, I know a highly rated business school that would be very glad to have that class if you were to teach it. Uh, I think your next book should be on that. Another, another bestseller, New York Times bestseller. Uh, every, every list bestseller. It's, it's a valiant effort, but I think Indra, mm. somebody who's actually led a Fortune 500 company, is much more qualified to deliver that particular <laughs> message. Uh, so what, what would you teach? What would you say to those CEOs? I know you're doing a lot of this work as part of the B team, uh, but what do you think is the most compelling message to start opening their minds? You know, um, one of the things I made some of my PepsiCo senior executives do, I said to them, look, if you're going to talk about obesity, don't talk about it from the offices. Go out into the communities and see what's going on. Look at markets where uh, people are obese, look at how they live, look at what happens in diabetes clinics. You know, this is in spite of the fact that only 2% of the calories came from beverages, from our beverages. So it's not that I was worried about just our beverages. I think it's a broader societal issue. And there's a downstream cost to society. And all companies have to work on it. So I took the bold step of addressing the industry association and saying, it's not one company that has to do something. All of us together have to act in unison.
to improve the food supply. And so we committed to the Healthy Weight Commitment Foundation, committed to take out one and a half trillion calories in five years. In reality, we took almost six trillion calories out of the US food system uh, in a matter of about four years. And so I think that industry working together with a very clear idea of where we need to go can actually make a huge difference. And uh, uh, too often, I think, we've got to bring CEOs together and say, you're better suited to solve societal problems than governments are. Because you're all engines of efficiency. You're big. I mean, as I've always said, companies are little republics. 160 billion put us up there. So you look at it, the statistics that way you go, big companies are little republics. They are engines of efficiency and effectiveness. They ought to be able to move mountains faster than a political system can. So why not us band together to get to the right uh, you know, change? Well, I love that vision. The metaphor calls to mind, though, another challenge, which is too many of those little republics are run by miniature dictators uh, who are, are basically power hungry and trying to get their employees to sell their souls and work nonstop and not care about their families. This is another huge issue for you. I think the, the challenge is where to start, right? So are, are we going to reimagine organizations and say, forget the nine to five workday, forget the five day work week? Like where, where would you begin if you were rebooting? I think the pandemic is forcing us to rethink everything. You can't take what people are saying today as the answer because we went from uh, everybody going to work, everybody in lockdown, we're trying to figure out what's the resting point. We don't know what it is, all right? The first CEO who comes and says, we're going completely flexible. Office space is gonna come a begging, and there's a game theory principle here, which is everybody has to say, everybody's gonna come back to work, and then quietly exit the office space market. So I think people are waiting to see how to play this commercial office space market. Wow, I had no idea that was happening. Is well, this how CEOs this is, think? The, this is, I'm a retired CEO. <laughs> Please don't forget that this is how retired CEOs think. But really think about it, okay? Uh, sorry. Uh, we get better with age, actually. <laughs> no, I think what it is is, it is not possible for everybody to say 100% come back to work because people have got a taste of caring for families, having some flexibility. Technology has accelerated to a point which allows hybrid working, flexible working, and to make it work effortlessly. The issue is going to be our frontline workers, people in manufacturing, people in retail, people who are driving trucks, uh, people in care jobs. They don't have flexibility. At best, we can give them predictability. So we should be careful not to create two classes of citizens, one group that has to get up in the morning, get to work, and another group that rolls out of bed and looks at Zoom. So we can't allow that to happen. Yeah. So we have to figure out how this is all going to work. I think this is the challenge for the next 12 to 24 months. I think so too. If you were running PepsiCo today, where would you start on that? You know, it's interesting. One thing I won't do is create hoteling systems in offices. Because if you're gonna to go to work, you need your personal space there. Because you're leaving home, which is, you know, kids running around, you're the center of all the work required to be done. If you go to the office, you want peace. But now if you're sitting in a hoteling system where it's not your place, you're plugging your computer wherever you want and start working, it doesn't feel quite personal to me. So hoteling, which was in effect in the last few years, may have to be revised into some workspaces. Uh, I think it would be impossible to hire and retain the best and brightest 
without some flexibility. Uh, I think it'd be impossible to retain, hire and retain young family builders and women without some flexibility. Uh, and so we're going to be writing the rules of the future of work quite a bit in the next two years. But I just hope, Adam, all of these committees on the future of work, some of which I'm a part of, don't just talk about robots and cryptocurrency and technology, but also talk about role of women, role of families. How do we go back and rewire the social infrastructure of the country? Um, you know, how do we do that? I hope all of that is part of the future of work. I hope so too, which begs the question, what are you up to now? The moonshot, just to set up a care economy. But beyond that, I sit on the board of Amazon, which is you know, a lot, lot of fun, I'm learning a lot. I sit on the board of Phillips Memorial Sloan Kettering, the International Cricket Council. I teach up at the Military Academy in West Point. So my plate is full. I'm having a time of my life. The only thing I'm missing is my quarterly earnings pressure. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> it almost looked like you were savoring that for a second. <laughs> if there's a surefire way to wake up feeling fresh after a night of enjoying alcohol, it's with Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/rethinking to get 15% off your first order when you use rethinking at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/rethinking and use the code rethinking at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. So, I, watching Amazon, given that you sit on the board, um, I, was, I, I almost did a touchdown dance when Jeff De Bezos finally, after two decades, committed to being Earth's best employer, not just Earth's most customer-centric uh -huh. company. Mm. Why did it take him so long? And what can we do to accelerate more leaders down that path? I don't think, look, I've been on the Amazon board for two years. And long before Jeff articulated being the Earth's best employer, I think it's very easy to put out a set of words. If you don't have the programs to go behind it, it's a problem. Um, I think what Amazon is constantly looking at is, if we say we're going to be the Earth's best employer, what does it mean? And can we deliver on that? So the company is consumed by that. On customer centricity, they figured it out. On the employer piece, everybody's focused on that. What does it mean? And is it an absolute number? Is it a relative measure? How are we going to make sure that I mean, the pay, Amazon was always one of the highest paid minimum wage, you know, $15, Amazon committed first. Educating its uh, employees, giving them the opportunity to go get a college degree, major commitment. Uh, they're raising the wages again. Uh, and so Amazon is trying to figure out what's the basket of pay and benefits that their workers need to remain happy at Amazon. And so I think they have all of the work done now, and they're implementing it. So you're saying the talk followed the, a little bit of the walk? Um, I think the talk, the public talk, mm -hmm. followed a little bit of the walk, which is, I think, the way it should be. Yeah, I think so too. 
So we're gonna um, we're gonna go to some audience questions. I've asked a few, but there are more coming. Um, before we do that, can we do a lightning round? Sure. All right. It's up to you whether you want to give a word or a sentence or yeah. something in between. Uh, first question is: Who is the living leader that you admire most? Lynn Manuel Miranda. <laughs> okay, I have to follow up. Why? <laughs> the fact that he can rap the way he does a whole play. <laughs> I keep trying it. I can't do it. You've tried? I've tried. It doesn't work. All right, we'll ask for a demo tape later. No. no. <laughs> okay, secondly, um, a, a company whose culture you really look up to, that you're not on the board of. <laughs> that I'm not on the board of. Um, Patagonia. Hard, hard to disagree with mm. that one. Okay, third question. If you were now going to have the challenge of running any company, which company do you think you'd be most excited to take the helm of? Oh, God. Oh, I'd take a healthcare company because the healthcare industry needs such radical reinvention in so many ways. I don't know if I can pull it off, but I would give it a good shot. Well, we could certainly use your wisdom and talent mm. there. If you were going to take any class in business school, what would it be? Data analytics. And finally, your best tip for dual career couples. You had a pretty complicated situation with your husband's work and yours, taking you to two different states and cities and sometimes even multiple countries. Yeah. What did you learn from that? First, marry the right guy. Very, very important. And early on in your life, make sure, before you get married, just make sure both of you understand it's an equal partnership, not... You know, you're going to do all the work and your husband is going to be along for the ride. Uh, and also make sure the husband's family, in the Indian context, make sure the husband's family is supporting you. Because if they put pressure on the son, you've lost it. So in my case, my in-laws were bigger supporters than even I expected. They, even today, are biggest supporters. So I had the lottery of life on this. Okay. The so husband and the in-laws. Marry for good in-laws. Check them out too is what I'm saying. Check them out. <laughs> There is nothing that you don't do diligence on. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's take some additional audience questions okay. here. How did you become comfortable in your skin in a large company? You know, you're never comfortable. There's always that unease. And even now, after having lived here for 42, 43 years, having been CEO, been in all the halls of power, there's still that unease. And... Uh, Maybe that's what propels me to keep doing better all the time, but um, I'm comfortabler than I used to be, but uh, you never get fully comfortable. And the big piece of advice I'd give people is maintain your authenticity, maintain your roots, maintain what makes you, but don't come to a different culture and then expect everybody to accept you for 100% of what you are. You've got to blend in too. Okay, you've got to blend in too. Um, the one story I'd tell you is that when I first came in here, in those days, the first question they would ask in a, a recruiting interview is about the ball game that happened the previous night. Sports was the language of business. So how was that uh, touchdown? Or what did you think of this playoff game? Everything was about sports. I can say, can we talk cricket? No, no they don't even know what cricket is. They think it's the most boring game. You know, I remember one CEO telling me, cricket, oh yeah, you talk about cricket, I'll go shopping and come back. He thought it was the most boring game, which is okay. You know, if you're not used to it, it can be. But, Have um, they ever watched baseball? Please. Well, 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 you remember, cricket is five days without an outcome, all right? So <laughs> let's just be clear here. 
make puts baseball to you know look like the fastest sport. But I love baseball, so no no comments about baseball here. <laughs> I love it too. I'm just saying it's really boring to watch. Go on. If you fall in love with the New York Yankees, you'll love baseball. Well, we're gonna have a problem there because no one should love the New York Yankees. <laughs> but so, carry on. And let's come back. And so um, um, you know, sports was the language of business. So I went to school on sports. I studied everything I could about the Yankees. I said, I'm going to go to become an expert on one team because I didn't want to just mouth off a couple of uh, things that happened the previous day. I said, I'm going to have a real dialogue with you. So I come back and say, maintain your authenticity. Don't give it up, but you've got to work hard to fit in because I made the choice to come to the United States. And I think that if I made the choice to come here, it behooves me to integrate in more ways than, you know, people expected me to. Well, I, I, think, I think we could have also done a lot more to make you feel welcome and included from reading some of the well, stories. Early the days. Those are the early days when there were not many people like me. But I will tell you that we all have to do enough for immigrants who come here willingly to also integrate. Who's the leader that was most intimidating for you to come face to face with? You know, for the wrong reasons, though. I mean, when I met Vladimir Putin, for example, you know... He, no, he, I think there are good reasons. No, no, I have to tell you, he was about the most welcoming person, but he has a habit of keeping you waiting for three or four hours in a meeting. Um, and so when you meet him, you know that you're meeting somebody who has total control over a country. He was amazing to us, but uh, it was a bit scary. Um, Especially when you're in, he's never in the Kremlin, he's in a separate building, and so it felt a little intimidating. Um, anybody else I felt intimidated by? No, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, even Putin, it was like a, oh my God, so this is the great Putin, you know, like that sort of a thing, you know. The rest of it, remember, you're going there, you're giving them jobs, you're making investments. So you have a little bit of an upper hand there. So any, anywhere you go, you're going in with some swagger. Well, you know you've made it when you have the upper hand on Putin. Yes. You, you have, let me put it this way. You're not terrified. You have a little bit of swagger. Okay? That's all. I wouldn't take out, I wouldn't take out the word terrified totally. But I'm not scared to death. And then a favorite question that I like to ask every one of our authors who visits. Um, is there a piece of bad career advice you got at some point? People who said I should have stayed in consulting. That was bad career advice, because I think there's a time to get out of consulting. Um, when I was leaving Motorola to come to ABB, there were some that felt going to ABB was going to work for an individual, while staying in Motorola would have been working for an institution, because I was following one person from Motorola to ABB. Um, I followed my heart and my gut, which said, follow the individual because he's such a great mentor, such a great supporter. Had I stayed in the institution, I don't know where I would have been. I think about that often. So, uh, look, people can give you all kinds of bad career advice. It's how you process it and what you do with it. I just want to say it's been such a delight to have you here. One of the reasons I became a professor is I think I'm unemployable, cannot imagine having <laughs> a boss or working for someone, but I would work for you. Uh, and oh my God. That, is, that is a mark of the respect I have for you as a leader um, from a competence perspective, but especially um, how deeply you prioritize the well-being of the people who work for you and also who, who, who are affected by your products. I think that's so rare. I think that's something we need more of in the world. And I think you are the role model that we need many, many more leaders to follow. 
Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Indra. And then in closing, I would love to give you a chance to give some advice to our audience. Um, as you embark on your job, put your hand up for the most difficult assignments. Nobody remembers you for doing and maintaining an easy assignment. Put your hand up for the most difficult assignment. Give it your all. Second, focus on the job at hand. Don't keep thinking about the next job and the next job. If you go into a company and say, I want to be a CEO in 15 years, guaranteed you're not going to be CEO in 15 years because you're so obsessed with your career track, you forget the job you're doing. Third, every company has politics. Understand the politics, do not play in the politics. Because the worst thing that can happen is you're labeled as political, which is a death knell for you. So please do not embark in playing the politics. Just be cognizant of the politics. Fourth, uh, for the women in the audience, form a sisterhood, support each other. One of the biggest issues we have as women is that I don't believe the sisterhood of women supports each other enough. If you see behavior that's uh, not acceptable, work together to call it out right away. Uh, it's critically important that at a time, and I think Wharton now has more than 50% women. I read the stats and congratulations to you all. But we want all of you to stay in the workforce. We don't want the best and the brightest that Wharton is graduating to drop out of the workforce, not because they want to, because the workforce does not accommodate them. So I think it's very important the sisterhood gets together and talks about what needs to change in companies. And finally, think hard about time. We have so little time in this world. And how you spend that time, how you balance the time, how you work your life around that time is going to be one of the most critical things that you do going forward. Thank, Thank you, you Adam. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next time on Taken for Granted, Nobel laureate Esther Duflo joins me to talk about how to fight poverty with data and how to motivate people. You wrote at one point that economists are like plumbers. Well, plumbers are really helpful. Uh, my father kept saying that uh, the best uh, for me to marry would be a doctor or a plumber because you always need these people near you. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I found neither. Taken for Granted is part of the TED Audio Collective. The show is hosted by me, Adam Grant. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Asia Simpson, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Cosmic Standard and mixed by Jacob Winnick. Original music by Hansel Sue and Allison Layton Brown. For more from Indra, check out her book, My Life in Full. There's one point in consulting where if you stay too long, it's very hard to land in a corporate job at the right level. Just before you make partner, you should leave. When you finally experience all the fruits of your labor. No, no, <laughs> right no, no, no. Right like, I've almost made it, I'm out. Right before you have to start you know, selling cases. That's a much better framing, so you get to skip all the sales work. That's exactly right. <laughs>